Good morning. The apostles who wrote the um, and whose writings give us some of the New Testament, they lived in a more black and white world than we do. The Old Testament was the only Bible they had. That was it. 39 books of the Old Testament. It means that there's one place, if you lived at that time, in the time of the early church, there was one place that you could hear good news if you were in any specific city, and that is the place where the influence of an apostle was present, either directly or indirectly. It had to be rooted back to them. They're the ones that had the words of Christ, that remembered the words of Christ. And John is, at the end of the first century, the last living apostle. And the final eyewitness, he's living in Ephesus, and he's writing at the end of the first century. He talks about some things about being children of God in 1 John 2.28 to 3.10, a, a passage that gives us some fits, and you'll see what I mean as we read through it. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame that is coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us? that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. One who thus hopes in him, purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Again, this is a very black and white world. We have the New Testament. They did not. Writings are circulating by this time, especially Paul's. However, these writings which will form the New Testament, that won't be compiled for a couple hundred years not until the beginning of the 4th century, 
uh, are the writings compiled into the New Testament of the Bible. So from the time then when John and the apostles exist to the time when those letters are pulled together, the Old Testament of the Bible is the only book they had. Therefore, to remain in Christ would mean to remain in the fellowship where the church met. It is not private then at that time to remain in Christ because, frankly, if you don't come to the place where an apostle or somebody trained by an apostle to understand how Christ fulfills the, New, the Old Testament, the Old Testament is the only Bible they had. If you don't find that place, you don't find the truth. Now, today, we have all kinds of Bibles. There's all kinds of New Testaments, Old Testaments. At that time, that did not exist. If you wanted to know about how Jesus changed things, you needed to find the place, the place where the church met. And in that sense, then, to remain in this place where the church met was not just nice. It was necessary. To go outside of that place was to go into darkness, into a lack of understanding. Um, if we forget the context, we get tripped up by the passage. John is fighting influences. There are people who were part of the church who have left it and are pulling people outside. Today, that wouldn't be a big deal. Oh, what church they go into? Well, they go from this church to that church. We might have some feelings about that church and this church. But in that sense, at that time, it's not the same. It's black and white. To leave the place where the word is proclaimed is to go out into darkness. And in John's mind, that is about spiritual death. Spiritual life is the place where those who understood Christ talk everywhere else is spiritual death. It's not simply about going to different churches. Again, to John, it's a matter of spiritual life and death. And we're going to talk about a couple things as John writes, the how and the who of holiness. He says, and now little children abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. John talks about two different responses when Jesus returns. He's going to return physically, bodily, is what it says. And first, he came as a little children. He came to a womb. When he comes a second time, large and in charge. He's not going to be a little baby, little tiny Jesus. He's, he's going to be um, big. Yeah. And there's going to be two different responses, confidence and shame. Confidence and shame. Confidence, when it says... Little children abide in him, so when he appears, we may have confidence. That word confidence, it is a word that we find elsewhere. It comes from two Greek words, all and saying. It means to say all. And the confidence here is the confidence with which a person could enter into the presence of a dignitary, a king, and speak with the king without fear. That's, and you gotta know, it means two different, it means two associated things. It's to know that you can enter the presence of the king. Not just enter. You could enter that place and speak freely. You could say what was on your mind. That's what it meant. And when it applies to God, 
it applies to speaking freely with him. Some then, when he comes at the end, will continue to have a conversation that they have had all along. They have developed a capacity and a comfort to speak freely with God through Christ, and that's the confidence with which they will greet Jesus. Then there's shame. Shame is rooted in the awareness of evil and ugliness. That shame has the sense of feeling ugly and weak and repulsive. And some, when Jesus comes, are going to have that sense, not that he is repulsive, but they'll sense that that's how they see him. That's how he sees them, excuse me. The sense, that's how he sees them, repulsive, ugly. And so they will shrink away from him at his coming. They'll be afraid to look him in the eyes. So those who are comfortable, confident, will be speaking. It's Jesus, let's go talk to him. And some will say, I, I can't. I, I, I can't. There's things that he's not going to want to see. He's not going to want to see me. That's where shame is from. It's rooted in. I, I no, I, I shrink back. There'd be either of those responses, and the shame comes from impending judgment. Which distinguishes one from the other? What distinguishes confidence from shame? Is it that the confident person hasn't done anything wrong? And the person that has shame has done things wrong? It doesn't seem to be in the text. It says, if you know that he is righteous. So those who are confident will know that he is righteous. The word righteous we ran into before in a passage in 1 John chapter 1, where it says he is faithful and it says just in that concept. Just and righteous is the same thing. I want you to listen. Here's what we ran into earlier. It's 1 John 1, verse 8 through 10. I'll just read it. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. What's happening in John's time? Some people are claiming, they're confessing that they don't have sin. It's not that they're not confessing their sin. That's not the problem John's dealing with. People are sinning and not confessing it. They're confessing out loud that they don't sin. That's a different thing, wouldn't you agree? To not confess sin and confess that you don't sin? Do you see the difference between those two? They're doing the second. They're confessing they don't sin. What the heck is that about? How many of you don't sin? Raise your hand. Oh, good. No hands. That's what he ends up saying. And John goes on, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Well, what John seems to indicate here is that sin is going to be an issue. And But the problem that he's dealing with is some who are confessing they don't sin. And he goes and he says, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. It says God is faithful and just too. What would you expect to find there? Faithfulness. Just. God is faithful and just to condemn our sin and hold us accountable. Wouldn't you expect that? Faithful and just? If he's merciful, if it says God is merciful and faithful and will forgive sins. Doesn't forgiveness come from mercy and grace? How in the world can forgiveness come from justice? I mean, if God's going to balance the scales, 
Doesn't he have to punish us? Right? That's not what he says. He says God is faithful and just to forgive us. A question then, how can faith, forgiveness, and cleansing be rooted in justice? That's a good question. But it indicates when God forgives, it's rooted in his justice. Justice is firm. It's not, okay, I'll give you a break. You tried hard, I'll forgive you. Just don't do it again. His forgiveness is rooted in justice. Absolutely. Justice is firm. It's hard. It's solid. Um, we'll experience communion later on. You know what justice really means? Justice is rooted in God's promises. Where does God promise to forgive? If God promises to forgive, justice is rooted in that promise. See, that's why forgiveness is not a soft, squishy thing. It's hard and solid. Uh, that's what communion, communion is about covenant. A covenant is an agreement where somebody promises to do something. And what the new covenant indicates, I will be helios or non-reactive to your unrighteousness and I will remember your sins no more. I will remember your sins no more. So God's forgiveness is rooted in that promise. That's why it's rooted in justice. He says, this is what I promise. And when God does what he promises, his forgiveness is rooted then in justice, right? He's faithful and just. Um, covenant faithfulness. So, if that's the truth then, if the difference between one who is confident and one who shrinks away is not about their behavior ultimately, it'll affect their behavior, it's about their belief, what is the problem with the person who, I can't, no, I, Jesus is here, no, what is the problem with that person? Is it that they've done wrong things? It isn't. You know what the problem is? They don't understand God's justice. Not the justice to condemn sin, the justice to forgive it. They don't know that there's a new covenant. You know the problem is a lack of covenant clarity. That's the problem. That's why this person shrinks away. They still think God operates from Mount Sinai. Obey and you'll be blessed. Disobey and you'll be cursed. I disobeyed. I can't go near him. That's a lack of covenant clarity because what Jesus came to do is to repeal the first covenant and replace it with a second. If we understand that, we have the ability to speak freely with him because we know that he's not making a list and checking it twice, trying to find out who's naughty and nice. You're not doing it. Not on this side of the cross. Um, one who shrinks away doesn't understand that God, Jesus came into the world so God could have more kids. So it says in John 3, 1, I mean, 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Jesus came to allow the Father to have more kids. It's an expression of love. See what kind of love the Father had given us, that we should be called children of God. When God wants to speak to you about his love, 
What he says is, you can call me father. You can call me father. That, in that context, is an expression of love. The father's love in that time in the Greco-Roman world was not a real safe, secure thing. Some of you didn't have great fathers. And when he's talking about fathers in the Greco-Roman era, some were really good. They, a lot weren't. Um, children were abused and were often unwanted when they were born. A father had this right. A father had the right to order them, his child, to be exposed if he really didn't like the kid. They could expose him to the elements, and they, the child would be taken to a place and just would be thrown there and allowed to die. And the father wasn't charged with the crime. That's the kind of society they had. Um, when God says that the, he is father, there is real love and commitment attached to it. It says we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet appeared. We know that when he appears, we should be like him because we shall see him as he is. This is a very important text, deceptively so. It gets to the how of holiness. How can we change? How does that work? Uh, what it indicates is that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we will see him as he is. Here's what it indicates. When we see Jesus, it's not going to be an operation where he's going to go, um, you know, change. You know, he's not going to do incantations, and he's not going to have to sprinkle us with this and that. You know what's going to happen? Here's the deal. You're going to see him. Bang! You're going to change. You cannot see him and not change. That's you? And it's just going to come. It's just going to be, wow. You're going to see him. That's going to be it. That's how change occurs. Glory is when God radiates his presence. I'm going to tell you two things about glory. Glory is what emanates from God and is directed towards a person. That's glory. Glory is not just God going, wah, 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 you know, just kind of radiating out into the stratosphere. God's glory is always directed. It doesn't direct out. It directs personally. God directs his glory at people. Now, here's the deal. Once you remember this, this is one thing you need to know about glory. Glory changes the one upon whom it shines. You cannot stand in God's glory and not be changed. Not possible. When we see him and his glory, it's going to be, bam, that's it. Because the glory is going to be perfect. But that is what makes or breaks your transformation, the degree to which you are remaining in the directed interpersonal things he wants to communicate to you, to the degree you remain in it. It will change you. You say, why does, because glory changes us. That's what changes us. And to remain in the glory, you cannot 
remain in his glory and not change. Not possible. That's why you... (laughs) I'm shrinking away. (laughs) But but it's it's important. Um, But what, what ends up being confusing is two kinds of glory. One glory will temporarily change your face. The second glory will permanently change your heart. Glory is related to covenant. Listen to me. Glory is related to covenant. The glory, what God expressed from Mount Sinai, is not the same as what God expressed from Mount Calvary. It's two different expressions of how I feel. Old covenant glory is you're blessed if you obey and you disobey if you're cursed. Can that change you? Can it change your heart? Can it change your face? It can change your face permanently, temporarily. It's what it did with Moses. That glory temporarily changed Moses' face. And here's what he did. Because he was with in that covenant, and what he did, because he knew that it was fading the way if you, something glows in the dark and you turn the lights off and it glows, and what happens? Dissipates. Moses knew that was happening. So here's what he did. When he was speaking, he wants you to see that I'm shiny, and he was. He didn't, by the way, when Moses went up into God's presence, he didn't try to get shiny. He didn't go, you know, he, what he did, he just <laughs> just went up there and he just became shiny. Why? Why? Because glory changes you. He didn't try to be shiny. What, but what ended up happening, he knew that it was temporary, and so what he did was this. So when he said things, you couldn't see that the glory was fading. Why did the glory fade? Because old covenant glory temporarily changes your face. How about new covenant glory? It permanently changes your heart. Um, that's a that's important to know, isn't it? You understand what I'm saying? If covenant glory will change you, old covenant glory will temporarily change your face. New covenant glory will permanently change your heart. Which one do you want to stand in? I'll be, I want to go number two. I don't want to go number two. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm ashamed. I'm not... <laughs> Cause what it says Paul was describing in his day in second Corinthians, it's in your Bible. It's in the, it's in the sheet. Yet to this day, whenever Moses is read, read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled faces, look what it says, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the other, to another. So what it indicates, we beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. You say, Mike, 
How do I change? Focus on his commitments to you, not his commandments. You focus on his commandments, it will temporarily change your face. You focus on his commitments, it will permanently change your heart. Why? Why? Because glory changes you. That's the way you were created. Um, in order to be transformed, then, we're going to stand in the light of glory. And they lacked covenant clarity at the time. They, they weren't really clear what God was saying. And we lack that covenant clarity today as well. And you know what ends up happening? It leads to a very confusing message. You end up hearing something like this. You're a child of God. Hurry up and start acting like it. Come on. Come on. You call yourself a child of God? That's a mixed message. It indicates that if you're a child of God, you should somehow already be installed with the ability to live for him. But that's not the way it works. It's, and what ends up happening is I, I talked to somebody once. He was a minister. And he says, I don't need to know more about the Bible. I just need to do what I already know. Which would indicate that the Bible is really given to tell you what to do. You know what the Bible is given? To reveal glory. To tell you how he feels. And if you stand in the light of that, you will find yourself doing what he wants you to do. Listen. And you'll be surprised that you are. Transformation doesn't come from trying hard. It comes from being changed. Being changed comes from glory. Standing in the light of his glory. That's, that's, what, that's how you change. That's why change. Um, consciousness of covenant commitments changes your heart. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Do you know what a Christian is? A Christian is one who understands that God's glory is unconditional commitments not conditional commandments. That's what a Christian needs to understand. It's not always clear today, is it? I, did, I wasn't raised even understanding covenants. I didn't know there was a different covenant. I didn't even know that, that communion is a covenant meal. You know what we're going to do with communion? We're celebrating the new covenant. What did Jesus say? This is the new covenant in my blood. What is communion? It's a covenant meal. What are we supposed to think about in communion? That God sends unconditional commitments. Why do we need to continue to do that on a monthly basis? Because we need to stand in the glory of new covenant glory. That changes us. Um, he goes on, on the heels of being called children, we're stopped in our tracks. It says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. This feels like good cop, bad cop. Doesn't it? The good cop left, and now here comes the tough guy. Um, with the love of God ringing in our ears, we're told the children of God don't sin. 
John seems to be saying that Christians are sinless. There's a number of different ways theologians try to get around this. What they try to do is it's real well. They're talking about, well, habitual sinning. Christians don't sin habitually. They might fall into it, but they don't stay in it. That's what the this version and other versions, like the New International Version, good versions, it says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. And they apply the fact that this is a present tense, but because it's present tense doesn't necessarily mean keep on. It's You know what it really says? Everyone who sins and no one who abides in him sins. What does that mean? You know, so to say keep on sinning, you know, that's one way to try to get around it. Do you, do you, does that feel uncomfortable to you? No one who abides in him sins? How many feel a little bit, <clears throat> Mike, I'm a little uncomfortable with that. Come on, raise your How many feel uncomfortable with that? You should. If you're listening to me, you should feel uncomfortable. Some people talk about deliberate sinning. Oh, you know, that you can fall into a sin. So it's saying no one who abides in him sins deliberately. You know, we kind of make mistakes sometimes, and I didn't know about it. And That's what some try to do. Some talk about, well, he's really talking about a particular kind of sinning. You know, a specific kind of sin. You know what the problem is with all those explanations? They really don't work. They don't work. Is it possible for Christians to be sinless? That runs into some problems. There's even people like David and Peter. They could commit witting deliberate sins. Is it saying that they're out? I mean, Peter denied Christ. Would you call that a sin? What did David do? I mean, let's pile them up. Murder, adultery. Christians don't sin. Um, second problem is, you know, when they talk about voluntary and involuntary, I mean, is that possible? You know, our sins, you know, I really didn't mean it. At some level, we don't mean to sin. At another level, of course we do. I didn't mean to say that. Yes, you did. <laughs> Part of me didn't. Yeah, part of you did. You know, if you like. uh, third, you know the third thing, and this is the biggest one? There's no indication that John is limiting sin. In the text, what he seems to be saying is not no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. You know what he seems to be saying? No one who abides in him sins. That's what he's saying. What does that mean? What do we do with that? Um, how can we make sense of it? He said, he said, everyone who makes a practice of sinning, or that's what it says in the passage, but that translation is really everyone who sins also practices lawlessness because sin is lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. That's going to help us. That's going to help us understand what's happening here. Lawlessness in Jewish thought is the violation of the revealed will of God. That's why it's lawless. God puts down a law. And those who, under that law, disobey are guilty of lawlessness. That's what sin is in a Jewish mind. Okay, here's the question. Are Christians guilty of lawlessness? That's a question. Take out, there's a sheet, there's an article. I'm not going to read through the whole article. But there's a sheet, and on the back of the thing on the 
the face of grace. I'm going to read just three paragraphs. It begins with Colossians 2 on the back side. It says, He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle over them, triumphing over them by the cross. God disarmed the powers and authorities and defeated them by the cross. He forgave our sins by taking the written code and nailing it to the cross. God forgives our sins by canceling the law our sins are based upon. And it says transgressions are forgiven because, in Romans it says, where there is no law, there is no transgression. That's what it says. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. It says sin is not taken into account when there is no law. What does that mean? Let's apply it. Do foreign diplomats break our law? Foreign diplomats, do they break our law? Oh, come on. They don't do wrong things? They don't do wrong things? It all depends who you're asking. When we look at their behavior, do they break our law? When you're looking at our courts, do they break our law? No, because they have diplomatic immunity. Not being under the jurisdiction of our law means that when they do wrong things, they are not breaking our law, right? Do you understand that? Do you understand? It all depends whose frame of reference you're looking at. When it's saying that Christians don't sin, is it looking at us or is it looking at him? Do Christians sin looking at behavior? Do Christians sin looking at the court of God? No, they don't, because you're not under old covenant law, and you cannot be guilty of breaking a law that has no jurisdiction over you. Do you get that? That's why Christians don't sin. It's not that they don't do wrong things. It's not classified as sin because you're not under the jurisdiction of old covenant law. Do you understand that? Do Christians sin? It's it's still tricky, isn't it? With respect to the courts of heaven, do Christians sin? Do you sin? With respect to the courts of heaven, is God counting your sin? No, He isn't because you're not under the law. That's what John is saying. That's a different message, isn't it? That's what he's saying. Children of God do not sin. This doesn't mean that we're perfect. It means that our imperfections are not sins with respect to the courts of heaven. Jeez. Sin is not taken into account when there is no law. Apart from law, there are no transgressions. It's hard for us to believe. You know why? Covenant confusion. 
we think we're under the old covenant, we think we're under the new, and does God punish us as in the angry at us? And that lack of covenant clarity kills us. It's like standing out underneath two different kinds of glory. A glory that kind of changes part of you, and a glory that, you know what, and it's confused. I ask you to do something. Stand underneath his commitments. That will change you. The fear of punishment cannot produce love. Can't. It can't. That's why when God wants to generate love, you know what he tells you? I am not looking at your imperfections as sins. And you have nothing to fear when I come. That's what he's saying. And if you stay in the light of that, you know what it will do? It will change your heart. And get this, you will begin to, no joke, love him. His love begets our love. That's the way it works. That's the way it works. If law is not binding, if law is not binding over you, sin is not possible with respect to him. I saw somebody do this. You know, that's what I'd like for you to see. If law is not binding with respect to him, sin is not possible. Do that. <sighs> There's a rest in that. Um, the who of holiness. But it says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. It really means no one born of God sins, for God's seed abides in him. He can't keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. It says, no one born of God sins, for God's seed remains in him. Look what it says. We'll look at this verse and then we'll apply it and wrap up. It says, Scripture imprisoned everything under sin. Scripture at this point is the Old Covenant. I want you to listen to me. Do you know why Scripture, the Old Covenant, is so frightening? It was meant to be. It was meant to put us under a conditional covenant so there would be the, same, there would be the sense of, I can't go to him. That's the way we respond to a conditional covenant. We feel ashamed. He's counting sin. We all know we do wrong things, and it feels like sin under the Old Covenant. And uh, it says, Scripture, that's what it does. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned, imprisoned until the coming of faith would be revealed. That's the way it was supposed to be. On, this, on the front side of the cross, it was supposed to produce a sense of a lack of confidence. Okay, then what happened? Look what it says. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. The guardian is, un is the law. That The law was a guardian that existed until Christ came. Now that Christ came, are we under the jurisdiction of the guardian? Are we under the jurisdiction of the law? No, that's what it means to be a Christian. You can't be a Christian and be under the jurisdiction of old covenant law. That's not what a Christian is. To be a Christian is not to be under the jurisdiction of all covenant law. 
To be a Christian means you can't sin because you can't be guilty of violating a law that has no jurisdiction over you. Right? It goes on. Now that faith has come, verse 25, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all children, sons of God and daughters through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. When it talks about put on Christ, it's, it's not talking about putting clothes over. You know what? Scripture has the, the sense of making us feel naked and ashamed. That's what Scripture does. It exposes us in a way. And to put on Christ is not, you know what it is? It's to put on something where you're ashamed. And Jesus says, I know you're ashamed. This is why I want you to put this on. Put this on. These are the garments of my sons and daughters, Jesus' brothers. That's what he wants to put on. Um, It says, as many of you were baptized, put on Christ for in There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. It talks about being Abraham's seed. Um, This is black and white. If you are Christ, you cannot be under law. You cannot be in Christ and sin because you can't be in Christ and under law. Okay, you say, okay, Mike, I'm kind of getting it. How do we apply this? Um, He ends with the focus. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. What is that? Nor is the one who does not love his brother. Do you know what God wants for you? To love one another. And here's the deal. It is not possible to suspend judgment over your head and get you to love. It's just not possible. There's fear and love don't coexist. You can't use the fear of judgment to get somebody to love. Therefore, if God is going to get you to love, what is he going to do? He's going to remove the fear of judgment. And with that out of the way, what would that mean? What would that mean? JC told me once about one of his kids who did something wrong, was embarrassed by it. And they sat down with her, and she just really couldn't face what she had done. This is what he, this is what he did. He goes, listen, I want you to look at me. He said, look at me. Do you see mad? Do you see mad? And she said, no. Okay, let's talk about what you did. That's how it works. If you look into God's eyes, you do not see mad. You will not see mad. He's not counting. And if you believe that and stand in it and drink it in, it'll change the way you relate to him. It will change the way you relate to yourself, and it will change the way you relate to others. That's why we experience communion. You know what this is? Again, it's a covenant meal. When a covenant was formed, what you did, you celebrated it. Is the new covenant something to celebrate? Holy smokes. 
Holy smokes. That's what this communion is. It's a covenant meal. We, we take the blood and we take the bread. And you know what we say? Thank God I'm under a new covenant. Thank God we're under a new covenant. So when, you, when you're taking this, you might think of what we've talked about. Walking in the light means, well, you remember what it means? Four things. God in you. God with you. God ahead of you. Guaranteed. I want you to think about those four things. God in you. God with you. God ahead of you. Guaranteed. When you're taking the bread and the juice, and I'm not going to tell you when to do it, thank him. God, thanks that you're in me and you're with me. The good's ahead of me, guaranteed. And again, we're going to have some music. Grab the elements, either to front or the back. When you drink the bread and, and eat the, drink the bread. Good luck with that. <laughs> drink the juice, eat the bread. Think of Christ and think of his covenant commitments and promises. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the new covenant, for sending your son to inaugurate a new agreement, one in which you promised to forgive our wickedness, be non-reactive, helios, gentle, favorable, gracious to our wickednesses. And that once we allow that light, once we remain in it, make room for it in our mind, it begins to change our thoughts towards you. We find that the fear of judgment is displaced slowly by the presence of love. Perfect love drives out fear. And we're all on, we all deal with things. We all have some level of confidence and some level of shame. We're human and we have been told things and those messages stick. Would you continue to help us to know what you say to us? Be clear about the covenant that you operate by, the new one. Help us to stand in the light of that so that it would change us and allow us to be the sons and daughters that you would have us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.